Let me take two answers that Jesus gave to two simple questions and then build my case for you. The first is a conversation of a man who came to Jesus and said to him, Is it all right to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus looked at him and said, Do you have a coin? The man said, Yes. He said, Give me that coin. Jesus looked at the coin and said, Whose image do you see on this? The man said, Caesar. Jesus says, Give to Caesar that which is Caesar's and give to God that which is God's. The man ought to have had a follow-up question and he ought to have said, what belongs to God? Jesus' answer would have been, whose image is on you? I want you to understand something here. No other founder of a worldview would have positioned you in that description. The Imago Dei, the image of God. What this questioner was trying to do was spit him in a political battle with the powers that be. Jesus always resisted the lure of political power. He never enforced his belief on anyone. And he resisted that temptation to power when they wanted to make him ruler. He said no. But then the second questioner comes and wants to pit him law against law, ethic against ethic. Because Moses had given 613 laws. And so this man comes to Jesus since they couldn't beat him up against political authority. They tried to pitch him against religious authority. And they said to him, which is the greatest commandment? Out of 613, it is fascinating to me that Jesus did not select one. What he said was this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said on these two laws hang all of the laws and the prophets. Why did he not give one? Because hinged on the one was the inextricable imperative of the second. You cannot say you love God and hate your neighbor. And the imperative to love God is because when you take all of the commandments and take the ten of them which were key, if there's one word that the ten commandments can be reduced to, it's the word sacred. Your life is sacred. Your property is sacred. Your marriage is sacred. Your time is sacred. And so is your neighbors. You cannot violate your neighbors sacredness of right and tell that neighbor that you still love God. I think what Jesus says here is remarkable. The value given to you is intrinsic. It's not extrinsic. That every human life is a life of worth and a life of value. That is the bequest of the Judeo-Christian teaching. That your life has intrinsic worth and is inviolable. Jesus always reached out to the marginalized over the over society rather than the sophisticated ones, be they religious or powerful. When he stopped to talk to the woman at the well who had five broken marriages in her life, 
The disciples questioned why he would even want to be seen by a woman like that. And the woman with the alabaster ointment came and poured it over him. She was a woman who'd made her money through means that would never have been affirmed or supported by the mainstream of society there. And the Pharisee looked at her and he said, thought to himself, if he only knew who she was, he would never have allowed her to even come near him. Children came to talk to him. The poor and the leprous came for his touch. The imperative of love and compassion from Christ to the marginalized in society came as a natural outworking of these two precepts that every human being is made in the image of God and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Good morning, Imago Day. Um, we had some handouts. Did anybody put your hand up if you never got a handout and would like one? Um, everybody got one. Fantastic. Okay, good morning, everybody. Ravi read from Mark chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. If I could have my first slide up, please, um, Robert. I'm going to, this is going to work today, people. Okay, this is, see this here? Oh. See, now, now, this coin, I just wanted to use this, by the way. Tim said I wasn't to shine it in anybody's eyes, but he never said I wasn't to do that if they were sleeping. So if you're sleeping and you start to feel your eyeballs burning, uh, I'm just testing out my new product, okay? So this here, <laughs> um, and now we're going to change it. Yeah, Whoa, look at that. Isn't that wonderful? Um, Mark chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness or image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Ravi said the man should have had a follow-up question. What belongs to God? Jesus' answer would have been, whose image is on you? You see, Caesar's image was on the coin, indicating that the coin was the property of the one whose image was on it. The coin had the image of the king. And so give to the king by paying taxes, what belongs to the king. But Jesus said to give to God what is God's. You see, God's property is also stamped. His treasured property is stamped with his royal divine image. And what is God's property? Coins, creation, the universe, it's mankind. Mankind is the property of the one whose image is stamped on him. And Jesus is saying, give to the man what is man's, but give to God what is God's. Here's a really, really important truth and doctrine that you and I, we must understand. We must have a revelation of and received by the power of the Holy Spirit if we ever are to have a healthy identity and self-image. You are the property of the King of the Kings. You 
have been stamped with an image. And that image is none other than Yahweh himself. And if you don't know who Yahweh, the name of our God in the Bible, the Christian faith is, that may not excite you terribly much. But if you understand who Yahweh is and what he is like, and then understand that you have been made in his likeness or in his image, that should make us go, wow. We were made in the image of Yahweh. You are the treasured property of the king and stamped with his divine image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 on your handouts at the top. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness. So there's a double repetition there of a slightly different Hebrew word to get the point across. So they made so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Genesis 5:1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Genesis 9:6. For God made man in his own image. Out of all the creatures God made, only one creature, and that is mankind is said to be made in the image of God. The animals were not made in the image of God, but mankind was. The meaning here is that God plans to make mankind similar to himself. He uses two Hebrew words, and I have no idea how to pronounce them, so I'm just going to say them fast and confident, and it may probably be completely wrong. But selem, Hebrew word for image, and demut, the Hebrew word for likeness. And they both refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents or is an image of. We can give a very simple definition. It's on your sheet in bold. The fact that man is made in the image of God means that man is like God and represents God. The fact that man is like God and represents God. It's been referred to um, by the Latin phrase, Amago Dei, which is Latin for image of God. Not to be confused with the five term for granddad, which is Dei. Does anyone refer to their granddad here as Dei? There's one, two, three, four, five. Dei. Dei is a Scottish word, D-E-Y. You can look at it. It's in the Scottish uh, vocabulary dictionary. Um, Dei actually means father, so grandfather should actually be granddai. But I first heard that something can be called my day. I was like, your what? My day. Who's your day? My day's my granddad. Well, why do you call him day? So um, it's not to be confused. It's not the imago dies. You're not made in the image of your grandfather. Uh, but you are made in the image of God. So the Scots were not far off. A.W. Tozer um, on your sheets. Um, we had at the start of that video, he says, the doctrine of man made in the image of God is one of the basic doctrines of the Bible and is one of the most elevating, enlarging, magnanimous, I had to look that one up in the dictionary, uh, which means generous, we could sum up as generous, and glorious doctrines that I know. Look at that. See that there? Oh, you need to F5 it for me, please, uh, Robert. Robert, if you could F5 that for me. Tim says, don't press the one in the middle, because that's what makes it go wrong. There we go, see? Everyone goes for the middle one. See that there? That's me playing with my new gadget. 
And um, it goes really far, actually. Look, look at that. See that in a bit? Oh, look, look, uh. So Tim says, don't put it in anybody's eyes. So I'll keep it nice, nice and high. But see you at the back. <laughs> um, let's all say together on the screen in front of me. Let's, let's read that together. I am made in the image of God. I am made in the likeness of God. I have been made like God, and I am to reflect and represent Him here on earth. You see, with just this understanding, what honor, dignity, privilege, and purpose this bestows upon mankind. In fact, so powerful is this worldview, understanding, and belief of mankind. It's one of the foundational uh, doctrines and beliefs that has shaped much of our modern society. Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, believed that every person was created by God and is worthy of dignity, love, basic human rights, and fair and just treatment. He fought for equality, and he called out those who discriminated against races. This is what Martin Luther King said of the Imago Dei. You see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the Imago Dei is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God, and this gives him uniqueness. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a base black is significant on God's keyboard. Precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all our non-violent might. Martin Luther King, Sermon 1965, Ebenezer Baptist Church. Now compare this understanding, mindset and worldview with that of atheism. If you're not an atheist, this is what you're missing out on, okay? This is from a book called On Guard by William Lane Craig. After all, on the atheistic view, there's nothing special about human beings. They're just accidental byproducts of nature that have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust called planet Earth lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. Richard Dawkins' assessment of human worth may be depressing, but why, given atheism, is he mistaken when he says, there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pointless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. It is every living object's sole reason for living. Are you glad you're not an atheist church this morning? <laughs> Shall I preach on that? We're not going to keep his uh, comments up there for too long. It's not, it's not worthy. See, this is why you can't just throw God out of our lives. You can't just throw God out of schools. You can't just throw God out of society and nations without consequences. What is one of the tragic and sad consequences of an atheistic worldview? Well, self-image, identity, and self-worth have to be thrown out with it. 
Human beings are reduced on the atheistic worldview to an accidental byproducts of nature and machines for propagating DNA. And there's nothing special about mankind if you're an atheist. Now compare that with the Christian worldview of the Imago Dei, Latin for the image of God. This views mankind as worthy of dignity because they are special, they're significant, they're highly valued royal image bearers who are stamped with the image of a compassionate, loving, just, and powerful God with the purpose to be like Him and to represent Him here on the earth. I present to you two views. Which one would you rather take? When we stop and think about our likeness to God, it will give us a strong sense of dignity and significance and self-worth. Just think about it. When the creator of the universe wanted to create something in his image, something more like himself than all of creation, he made you. You're more like your creator than the starry universe, the abundant earth, the world of plants and animals, and even angels. Wow. No wonder A.W. Tozer had that phrase about it being one of the most elevating, enlarging, magnanimous, and glorious doctrines that he knew. We must remember that even sinful, fallen man still bears God's image. Of course, after sin, man was no longer fully like God as he was before. His moral purity was lost. His sinful character certainly does not reflect God's holiness. Sin affected everything from man's intellect, his speech, his relationships. So absolutely, sin distorts the image of God and man. But what's incredible when we must remember and understand that the image is not completely lost from mankind. Romans 23, 3.23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't say all have sinned and lost the glory of God. This is the fallen short of the glory of God. You see, God's image is glorious. And man, mankind has fallen short of that glory, of that image that he was created to reflect and represent on the earth as God's image bearers. And he has not fully represented and reflected that image because of sin. They have fallen short of the glory of God's image they were created to reflect and represent. You see, in Genesis 9 verse 6, God gives Noah the authority to establish the death penalty for murder after the flood. And he says in Genesis 9, 6, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. Therefore, someone who kills that man deserves to be killed. This is after the fall and refers to sinful man. We're told they're still made in God's image. So sin does not completely cause someone to lose the image and likeness of God completely. Even though men are sinful, there's still enough likeness of God remaining in that person that to murder another person is to attack that part of creation that resembles God the most. Very simply, sin does not cause man to lose God's image completely, but it does distort God's image at every part. But it's still there and it's um, just mainly distorted, but not completely removed. James chapter 3, verse 9 confirms this. It says that man generally, this is talking about man, not necessarily Christians, it's talking about all man, 
are made in the likeness of God. So the fall and sin didn't, didn't cause man no longer to be in the image of God. In a practical day-to-day terms, that makes sense because the person that you work next to, it's easier to see it in them than yourself, which is a reflection of us. They can be the most annoying, rude, uh, obnoxious um, person in one instant, and another instant they can be compassionate and loving and kind. And they surprise you and think, that person's so annoying, but they've got some great values. They've got some great traits as well. There's still something in mankind um, that represents and reflects God. No matter how much the image of God in man is distorted by sin, illness, weakness, age, disability, people still carry the image of God. There's profound, strong, and deep implications for this, for this truth. And, on, and uh, we're going to see in this next video, if we could have the next video ready to go, the second one down. Because all these people are made in the image of God, they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect as due God's image bearer. As I say, this has tremendous implications on our conduct towards others and has amazing implications on our mission. Just pause that a wee second, thanks. It means people of every race deserve equal dignity and rights. It means that elderly people, the seriously ill, those with intellectual disability and unborn children are, deserve full protection and honor as human beings. Let's go with that video, please. Thanks, guys. The canvas of God's love is broad. But as Christians exercise the love of God in the world, one common thread holds it all together. The Christian story speaks of a mystery that lies deep in the soul of every human being. In the beginning, God in all his power and creativity reached down to craft a world that reflects his glory. By his word, he spoke the planets into existence but with his hands and his breath, he sculpted men and women unlike anything else. The scriptures tell us that human beings were God's masterwork, and he wrote his signature, set his imprint on the human soul. Humans are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. We have the ability to create, worship, communicate, reason, and relate. We are capable of love and responsible for our actions. The Christian story also tells us that humankind, created for intimacy with God, rejected God instead. Created to reflect Him, we sought to replace Him. This sin brought death and destruction into the world. But the fall is not the end of the story. For God sent a Redeemer, the perfect image of the invisible God, took the fractured pieces of our humanity and bound them up, restoring the broken image of God and renewing our lost fellowship with Him. This, the image of God, changes everything. It shapes how we see the world and one another and calls us to honor the image of God in everyone. Christians work to alleviate poverty, disease, and starvation because even the poorest of the poor are created by God in the image of God. Christians work to rescue and rehabilitate abducted and trafficked girls and boys because there is no such thing as a disposable human being created by God and in God's image. Christians fight abortion because children created by God in the image of God 
should not be terminated and discarded, and because mothers created by God and in God's image deserve our care. Christians uphold the dignity of the elderly and disabled because all who are created by God in His image are fearfully and wonderfully made and dear to Him. Christians work on behalf of all immigrants because they too are created by God in the image of God and should be welcomed as we would welcome Christ. Christians work for religious liberty because the freedom to follow one's conscience is part of what it means to be created by God in the image of God. Christians work for the flourishing of marriage because it's an instrument of blessing for women and men created by God in the image of God and the essential building block of a flourishing society. Christians work for racial unity and reconciliation because all people created by God in the image of God share something much deeper than skin color. In short, there has never been a human being who was not created by God in God's image. And that's what animates everything we do, the common thread that holds it all together. God's image compels God's children to love all people. The world is broken. We yearn for the day when Christ will make all things new. But for today, we do what we do. We strive for justice and dignity, liberty and flourishing, because every person who bears the stamp of God matters to God and matters to us. PowerPoint back up, please. Said there that the image of God changes everything. It shapes how we see the world and one another and calls us to honor the image of God in everyone. God's image compels God's children to love all people. The video said that we strive for justice, dignity, liberty, and flourishing. I love that word flourishing. It should be part of our mission statement to bring flourishing to the city, to bring flourishing to, to uh, God wants to bring flourishing into our life. That's what Alan's been talking about, times of refresh, refreshing. It's a flourishing, to bring flourishing to the cities, to bring flourishing to your workplace, to bring flourishing to your marriage, to bring flourishing to your children, to bring flourishing to nations, to bring flourishing to the world. Because every person who bears the stamp of God matters to God and matters to us. Let's say together on your screen up up there, please. Wait a minute, I need to, um, yeah, see, see this part here? Could you read this part, please? Uh, every, every person who bears the stamp of God matters to God and matters to us. Let's repeat that. Every person who bears the stamp of God matters to God and matters to us. Remember what Ravi said. I think what Jesus says here is remarkable. This is Ravi Zacharias. The value given to you is intrinsic, not extrinsic. So that's wonderful. They used to have this analogy. Dad used to do this in high school. He used to take a five-pound note. They would trample on it. They would... Um, I don't know if you spat on it, but they would, uh, you know, they would crush it all up and then they would kick it into the, the audience at the high school. And he says, you know, for some of you, that's maybe what your life is like. You know, you've been stamped upon, walked upon, you've been, you feel trash, you feel useless, feel dirty, feel wrinkled, feel broken. I want someone to open, open that and tell me 
what is the value of that note? You see, because the value, what was the value of that crushed up note? It was the same as it was before because no matter what has happened to you or what you have done, your value is intrinsic, not extrinsic. That every human life is a life of worth and value. Ravi said, this is the bequest of the Judeo-Christian teaching that your life has intrinsic worth and is inviolable. That means never to be broken or unbreakable. Jesus always reached out to the marginalized of society rather than the sophisticated ones, whether religious or powerful. The imperative of love and compassion from Christ to the marginalized in society came as a natural outworking of these two precepts. That number one, every human being is made in the image of God. And number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, one danger of atheism that views human beings as accidental byproducts of nature, machines for propagating DNA, is that it could lead to the depreciation and depreciating the value of human life, tending only to see humans as merely a higher form of animal and begin to treat others as such. But how is man like God? That is a question that's been discussed and um, talked about for many years. How is man actually like God? Various suggestions have been made over the years, things like man's intellectual ability, man's ability to make moral choices or willing choices, man's original moral purity, or man's mandate for dominion over the earth. But much of the search for the meaning of the phrase image of God is too narrow and it's looking for too specific a meaning and we shouldn't get bogged down with trying to work out in what way is man actually like God because the original readers would read Genesis 1.26 like this on your sheets. Um, is there somewhere? Yeah. Let us make man to be like us and to represent us. Let us make man to be like us and to represent us. Here's um, a second last video, and it's from somebody called N.T. Wright. He's a professor of New Testament and early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews. He's one of the world's leading New Testament scholars. He's a retired Anglican bishop. That means he's actually had hands on the deck uh, practical reality of day to day. So he's not just a scholar who's uh, got it all sorted up here. He's had to try and figure out what it actually looks like on the ground in day to day of the trenches. But he shares his thoughts here on a few minutes on what it means to be an image bearer. Second last video. Thank you. The picture I often use to help people understand what Genesis means by the image of God, and indeed what um, Paul means by the image of God, because he uses that as well, um, is the image of an angled mirror. We often think of an image as being a mirror. Here's a mirror, I'm looking at it, I'm seeing it myself. But supposing we have an angled mirror. I remember when I was a small boy um, being ill in bed and uh, uh, my mother lined up a mirror in the doorway of my room so that through that mirror I could see 
her and other family members coming and going in the hallway outside my room so that I didn't feel so isolated and alone. And the point about the angled mirror is that you can see in both directions. And uh, it seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in his world so that God can reflect his love and care and stewardship of the world through humans and so that the rest of the world can praise the creator through humans. And the way this comes out in many biblical passages is to see God's people. You get this in Exodus 19, you get it in the book of Revelation, you get it actually in Paul as well. See God's people as uh, the royal priesthood. The priesthood because they are summing up the praises of creation presenting it before God. So when, when humans praise God, they ought to realize that they are doing so as the representatives of the whole world, reflecting the rest of the world to God. But when humans are looking after creation and bringing God's healing, restorative justice to creation in all sorts of different ways, there they are reflecting God into the world. So that the image of God is not, I think, something about us, our memory or our conscience or our imagination or our spirituality or our reason. Or, theologians have tried all that as though there was something about us which is exactly like God. No doubt a lot of that is true, but I think it's a much more creative, much more uh, dynamic picture. Um, the, the priests and the kings or kings and queens uh, reflecting God to the world and the world to God. And I see the, the human vocation and the Christian vocation as being to recover, to recapture that image. Paul talks in Colossians about being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. And it seems to me if we actually looked at our own vocation vis-a-vis -vis the world like that, all sorts of things about how we treat the world, how we act responsibly within it, would uh, appear in quite a different light which could be very healthy. Hence the reason for the angled mirror, and uh, Clara gave me before I came up the, the king of diamonds. She said, Dad, they reflect the king. So thank you, Clara. That's an absolutely fantastic. So we'll see the, the, the king of diamonds there, which we are reflections of. Now, that video, you would probably have to listen a good few times um, to uh, break it down. There's a lot in that very small uh, snippet, but he says God put humans in the world like an angled mirror so that God can reflect his love and care and stewardship of the world through humans. And so the rest of the world can praise the creator through humans. Okay, he talks there about Colossians 3 verse 10, which says that we have put on the new self, which are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. He said, when humans are looking after creation and bringing God's healing, restorative justice to creation in all sorts of ways, they are reflecting God into the world. So it's, this idea is not just an idea and knowledge and intellect. It's about what's our response. What's our response to society? What's our response to the injustices that we see? What's the response to the earth and the state that it's in just now? Do we just hang tight, hide away, hide away in a corner and wait till we get to heaven? Or do we actually believe we are part of the new creation? We are new creations called to reflect and represent him, bringing his healing restorative justice to the world and therefore living out what he taught us to pray, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven heaven. 
He says in his book, The Day the Revolution Began, which is talking about how this is brought about by the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ leading to the pouring out of his spirit. He talks, he says, what the Bible offers is a covenant of vocation. Vocations to do with your calling, your original design and purpose and the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the Holy Spirit is to take us back to the original design, the original vocation, if you like, the original purpose of humanity, which is to be genuinely human with genuinely human tasks to perform as part of the Creator's purpose for His world. The main task of this vocation is image-bearing, reflecting the Creator's wise stewardship into the world and reflecting the praises of all creation back to its Maker. Those who do so are called the royal priesthood, the kingdom of priests. The people who are called to stand at the dangerous but exhilarating point where heaven and earth meet. That deserves a whole message on itself. We taught in a previous message, I talked about the Bethel, the house of God, is described as the gate of heaven. We are the intersection of heaven and earth, that when people come to the house of God, it's a place of access to heaven because we are the, 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 like the mirrors who can reflect God's love and uh, reflect God's healing and justice to the world. The New Testament encourages us um, that we can progressively grow into the likeness of God. Through the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the pouring of the Holy Spirit, we can grow back. We can, you know, we've fallen short of that glory, but we can get back to the glory. We've fallen short of the image bearing, but we can get back back to the image bearing because of Jesus' victory on the cross. And that's why Paul says in Colossians 3.10 that we have a new nature that is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We see that our thinking needs radical transformation because it's as we grow in the knowledge of the truth that our thoughts are renewed and our thinking becomes more like God's. What does that look like? Well, someone hurts you and offends you at work and a distorted image wants to take revenge. That's the last coffee I'll ever make them. But a renewed image thinks, what would God do? Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. I should really make them a coffee, <laughs> even though they don't deserve it. You see, that's a practical reality of the understanding of being part of the new creation, to be renewed by our thinking. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we're transformed by the Spirit into the image of Christ and we're told at 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Think about it for a second. What would the image of God look like in a human being that was not distorted by sin? What would the image of God look like in a human where that human had not sinned, had not fallen short of the glory? What would a human being look like in the fullness of glory of the reflecting and representing of God look like on the earth? What would it look like? It would look like the name of one man. What was his name? The, in Jesus Christ. The, he is the, uh, the, the, the image of the invisible God. So when you see Jesus, does that mean passive? Sometimes he wasn't passive. Sometimes he stood up. 
to injustice. Sometimes he, he called out people. Sometimes he challenged people. Sometimes he was strong. Sometimes he turned over tables. And sometimes he got mad. And sometimes he got angry. Righteous anger. Rightfully angry. It's not always about being meek and mild. Although there's a time for that. Romans 8.29 confirms that the goal for which God has redeemed us is that we might be conformed to the image of the Son. Romans 8.29, the goal for which God has redeemed us, that we be conformed to the image of His Son. And God desires us to have victory over sin, not just so that we can be good and nice people. He wants us to have victory, not just so we can be morally good and be nice and clean and pleasant and keep our mouths shut, and when someone's uh, playing up at work, that we just leave them and don't challenge them and be non-confrontational. That's not Christ-like. Christ-like was confrontational. We must confront injustice. We must stand up to bullies. We must call out um, uh, those that are, um, uh, if, if we're in that, pl- in, in that place or in that position. You see, God's goal is for us to overcome sin, that we may be more like Him, we may be better reflect his glory and better represent him on earth and get back to our original vocation, our original design, our original calling to be his image bearers on earth, bringing transformation and renewal to the earth. Now that can sound very abstract, but in the day-to-day reality, how are you transforming your workplace? Do you leave your Christian principles and values at the front door and just walk in and say, I'm here and I'm your boss? Or does the fact that you're a Christian affect your day-to-day dealings with people? That the people that you meet are people that are actually created in the image of God. That the people that you are working with are created in the image of God. And as I say, that doesn't mean passive and allowing um, bullies to be bullies or allowing um, uh, those that are being out of order just to ignore that. But it does affect how we deal with people. We deal with them in a fair and just way, with listening, with understanding, with empathy and compassion and reason, and maybe actually learn in our workplace that the reason they're being a complete nuisance is because there's things going on in their life. Not that we should as bosses get involved in that, but it does give us some sort of empathy and say, you know what, we've all got things going on in our life. I'm really sorry for that. That is bad. But that should not and must not affect how our behavior in the workplace. I'm just trying to give a practical uh, 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 outworking of this and to see what it looks like. One last quote, one last video, and then we're going to pray. This is John Ortberg. He says, The fact that you are made in the image of God tells you not just about your worth, but also about your destiny. The main point of the image of God language in Scripture is not about some ability or trait we share with God. It's about the mission He has given us. This understanding, this doctrine, this truth should affect the mission of our lives, the mission of this church, and uh, actually how we go about our life. Through our learning, our work, our culture, our relationship, technology, the arts, medicine, we are with humility to add goodness and beauty. That's like, that's like flourishing type language. We are to add goodness and beauty to families. And I don't know if you're ready for the next video. I have to give you a warning. The next video is raw. But it's bringing goodness and beauty to our troubled world.
to families, to societies and creation. We get ready with that DVD, please, Robert. We're going to go. Just have it on pause, please. Thank you. God's whole project becomes a glorious to delight to all who see it. For the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to watch this story and then we're going to pray. Okay, Robert, just take away that last. So here is, yeah, sorry, as a way of introduction. Um, Ravi said that the imperative of love and compassion from Christ to the marginalizing society comes as a natural outworking from two precepts or two truths. So the imperative to love and have compassion for the marginalizing society comes from the truth that every human being is made in the image of God. And number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What does that look like in reality? There's many ways. Here's one powerful way. Let's watch this. Um, chapter 9, please. Thank you. When I was praying about going to Brazil to film with Nick and Rachel, I felt the Lord telling me to do something very specific with them. It didn't make much sense to me, and the thought of putting myself on the line for this was terrifying. The first part was to put on a kind of banquet for any of the prostitutes who wanted to come and simply bless them with love, kindness, good food, and gifts. I had no idea when God told me this that Nick and Rachel were already starting to do these. But the second part of it involved us doing something very specific. So yeah, I mean, one of the things you asked me that you felt from the Spirit was that we were going to have a song, spontaneous song that had never been sung before to sing over these girls that would be like the breaking point that would unlock their hearts and that the Holy Spirit would just fall in the room at that moment. So I don't know if you asked me that a couple months ago or when it was, but ever since then, I've just been like, okay, Father, we'll go for it then. I'm, honestly, I haven't even really prayed into it because it's like, I trust that Darren hears from the Holy Spirit. Let's go for it on that night. And we'll just let him sing the song that he wants to sing and we'll, we'll release it however he wants to release it and see what it's going to do to these girls. For Rachel and I, it will be a Holy Spirit thing because for us to sing spontaneously in Portuguese is a real challenge for us because we, we don't have that yet when we speak Portuguese, but it's way different to just grab words out, out of the Spirit and sing them. So I'm really excited about that tonight and asking the Father, just give me the words to sing over these girls that they need to hear. Give, give me the love song that you're singing over them. Father, you know Portuguese, so I'll let you sing it to me and I'll sing it to them. The banquet is really, really special for us because this is a time that we get to invite all these precious ones that we've been talking to on the streets. You know, we go regularly to the streets. We have a relationship with these girls, but we just really wanted an opportunity to just lavish them with love, you know, and really just pour into them because everyone that comes to them, all their clients, even sometimes the churches that come, they all want something from them, even if it's just you know, I want to spend this time with you, but can you say this prayer at the end of us spending this time together? It's still wanting something from them. So we want to give them an opportunity and we want to open it up as like a fellowship, a safe fellowship that they can come in and they can hear the word of God without any judgment from churches, without any of those complications. Just they know when they come, they're coming into a safe place and we're going to love them right where they're at.
the Holy Spirit, who hovers over the waters, heard that his daughters needed him, and he came for them to show them how he really saw them, not as prostitutes, but as his spotless bride. Meninas, enquanto elas estão ministrando para vocês, eu quero falar uma coisa que a Bíblia fala, que é que Deus, Pai Deus dos céus, está cantando sobre cada um de vocês e cada um de nós. E Ele está cantando com amor, com alegria e com liberdade. Então, hoje à noite, eu quero pedir para uma canção nova que nunca foi cantando cantada antes uma canção nova que nunca foi cantada antes o que é o canção a canção dentro do coração do Pai que Ele está cantando sobre vocês e eu vou pedir para o Espírito Santo vem e canta essa canção para vocês que está dentro do coração do Pai para vocês porque Ele está cantando sobre vocês És a canção dentro meu coração, minha filha. Tu és o sorriso no meu face, meu Dentro meu coração, minha filha, tu és o sorriso no meu face, meu amor. Ela está cantando sobre vocês. Eu nunca. And as if God gently letting these women know how much he cares for them wasn't enough, two of them, as a result of simply encountering the love of the Father, finally realized their worth as daughters of the King, 
and decided that it was time to leave this old life behind. Both now work with Nick and Rachel's ministry, Shores of Grace, in trying to turn prostitutes into daughters. Thank you, guys. If you just play that worship song, let's stand to our feet, shall we? Bill Johnson, in a recent uh, message, he says, Beholding the glory of the Lord is the most transformational encounter a person can and will ever have. Beholding the glory of the Lord is the most transformational encounter a person can and will ever have. Just play that, play that worship song if you've got it, guys. Wasn't that beautiful? The grace, the love of God sang over these women. The marginalized in society. Here's these women created in the image of God. Hearing a message of grace and love. Let's just close our eyes. For some of you here this, this morning, that song was for you today. Maybe you felt like that five pound note being stamped upon and trampled and you feel that things have happened in your life and you've lost your value. It was because of love that the Father sent His Son so He could restore you and bring you home into the Father's house. And why God sent His Son because He loves you and He's calling you and drawing you to come and to join the family of God and allow Him into your life and to follow Him and to leave. Following and putting other things first and to put Him first in your life. So today, with every eye closed, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you're not sure 100% that you're a Christian, if you're not 100% sure if you, if you die tonight would go to heaven, I want you to repeat this prayer and just allow the Father to come into your life to restore, to renew you and to make you new and to become a Christian today. Today, to say, God, I need you. I want to follow you. I'm just going to ask you and just to lead us in a, in a prayer. Just repeat after you and Lord, would you hear my heart? Lord, you know what I have been doing in my life. You know how I have been living. And Lord, I ask, would you please, would you please forgive me? Forgive me from what I have been doing. Would you forgive me for what I've been thinking, what I've been seeing? Lord, your spirit is on, is on me now. And I am seeing myself with your eyes. And I need you to forgive me. Lord, please come into my life. Because without you, I cannot change. Come into my life, Lord may you take control that I may be transformed into your image pure holy cleansed free because only you can do that come Lord I need you guide me in your ways that I may be yours 
forevermore. Amen. With every eye closed, if you said that prayer today for the first time and want to become a Christian and invite God into your life to come and make you brand new, just put your hand up nice and high if anyone said that prayer. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Anybody else? Put there. Thank you. Two, three. Wonderful. Wonderful. Put your hands down. Anybody else? One more. One more. Three. Three today. One more person. Anybody else? Heavenly Father, that song that was sung today was not only written for those women, it was written for you, for you that put your hands up today, that the Father, if you put your hand up and, uh, and God knows you, your heart, I'm just going to pray for you, Father, would you pour out your spirit upon your children and let them know how deep the Father's love is for them, O oh God, and let your healing touch them by your spirit now, allow the Holy Spirit to heal you. He's a healing God and he can heal your pain. He can heal your disappointment. He washes away all of your past. He wants to give you times of refreshing to come into your life as you seek to follow him and to, to give, uh, give your life. You don't understand everything, but seek to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Master and to follow his way. He can restore the years that the locusts have devoured. You see that years have been wasted, things have been devoured, things that you hope for have been destroyed and disappointment in your heart. God would heal you now by His Spirit and encourage you that He can restore. He's a God who restores. He's a God who heals. We want to encourage you today. Give Him all your heart. Give Him all your heart. Choose today to follow after Him, to put Him first in your life. Tell the person that came with that you said that prayer today and ask them for a pack. If they don't know what a pack is, ask them to go to the office and get you a pack this week at some point and post it out to you, okay? They're a friend here, they'll do that. They'll, they'll, they'll get a pack which gives you some early directions. But we're going to pray for everyone here today, people, because this affects our mission. Number one, and what I want you to know is your value. Your value is not detracted by the crushing of the five pound note. Your value created in the image God. Your incredible value to your father. He sings over you. He weeps over you. He delights in you. And he wants the best for you. He wants the best. Second, to know your value. Second, to know your vocation, your calling, your design to be his image bearer, to bring God's healing, restorative justice in your household as a husband or a wife, as a father, as a mom, as a boss, as a citizen in the city that we seek to pray for the shalom of the city, for in the shalom of the city where we find shalom, for in the welfare of the city that we've got to be concerned about marginalized in our society how we're going to see blessing and flourishing come to this city as we get involved in the mess as we aim for the pain as we've as we see our mission 
in light of the two imperatives that Ravi spoke about, that we all humans are created in the image of God and we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the mission for this church as we go forward. You and just pray that in. Band, come back up. We're going to close in a song. But uh, you and just pray that through as this song continues to play. Just, just pray whatever, bro. <laughs> Lord, we want to we want to bring your heart, your love over every head here, Lord Jesus. Right now, in the name and the power and the authority of Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, I pray you will release the image of Christ into every heart and every head here. In the name and the power and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, will you release your image of how you see every single person here right now, Lord God. And I say to you, the lies of Satan, which you have listened to from family, from friends, from generations, I bind you and I break you and I command you to flee in the power and the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, Lord, Right now, Lord, release the release, Lord God. That the darkness of which people have saw themselves of no worth, of being of filth, of being of seeing no hope and of seeing no light, of no escape. Lord, may you reach down, pull them up and hold them close. Because you are singing a song. You are always singing a song, but they've not been able to hear because of distractions of Satan, Lord. Let your song now be heard. May your spirit be heard, Lord. May already, may they have that warmth because something is happening, something supernatural is happening because you're speaking to them, Lord God. You're speaking to them and saying, I love you. I don't care what everybody else said to you, but I love you. I have broke my heart over you. Because how much do I value? I put my son on a cross to die for you. I put my son on a cross to die for you. A life, a life of eternal power and redemption. I put on a cross that you may be set free. Lord, may you release the value you see in them. That you weep over them right now, Lord. Right now, Lord, in your name, amen and amen. Let's put our hands together and give God a great and mighty praise. We thank you, Father. We rejoice in you. We praise you. We love you. We worship you. You're a glorious and mighty, awesome God, worthy of all praise and honor for today and forevermore. Let's worship with joy in our hearts. We give thanks to God, the rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. With joy in our hearts, we join a party now. We join a party in heaven and celebrate this new day. The new creation has begun all over again in our lives and these new souls in this city. We praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus. You can dismiss us at the end, George. Thank you.